everyone, it's Paul. And I'm Kelsey. And this is the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast. How Goodness Pays can be a successful strategy for good leadership. Our purpose is to spark positivity and what's possible thinking in leaders like you so you can radiate goodness today and every day. Our mission is to spread goodness because goodness pays. I'm Paul Botts, the founder and CEO of Good Leadership Enterprises. We're recording this podcast in the Aspiration Suite in our offices in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I make my living as an author, executive coach, and professional speaker. And I'm Kelsey Meyer Shockle, and I work as an executive coach and consultant, and I love to mention that I'm a mom. You can find out more about us and Paul's firm, Good Leadership Enterprises, at goodleadership.com, and check us out at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, and now here on this podcast. And you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and our website at goodleadership.com. And as always, we invite you to leave ratings, reviews, and comments. So before we get farther into the podcast, I want to share one of my favorite quotes from Dale Carnegie. Most of us have far more courage than we ever dreamed we possessed. Oh, I I just love that quote because promoting goodness and certainly writing the book about this requires courage. It's also really cool because Maureen Tubbs from Dale Carnegie is here with us today. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Paul. Great to be here today. Thanks for having me. Sure. So I wanted to bring Maureen to you by the podcast because some really cool news is that Dale Carnegie is now actually sponsoring our How Goodness Pays podcast, and we couldn't be more thrilled about that. Yes, we are very excited, too. We really believe that goodness pays and that our companies have the same idea of what thriving together means, and that's why we wanted to sponsor you guys. Well, it means a lot. Our companies are both in the leadership space, but we're on different railroad tracks that are really heading in the same direction. Can you explain a little bit more to our audience about what Dale Carnegie does? Yeah, sure, Paul. It actually reminds me of something that you said when you said nothing ever happens alone. You know, and our programs, both public and private, uh, give people the opportunity to grow together. So to develop hope and confidence and courage and honestly, better human relationships. So they're for people who sell, lead, present and need to work with others to get things done. That sounds terrific. Thank you very much again. So remember, our favorite Dale Carnegie quote has to do with courage. If you want to tap into that deep well of courage that's inside of you, Check out the courses that Dale Carnegie has to offer at dalecarnegie.com. Today we're featuring Pahua Yang Hoffman from the Good Leadership Breakfast that happened just this morning. Paul, will you tell our listeners a little bit more about the Good Leadership Breakfast? Yeah, absolutely. So we produce leadership development programming. The Good Leadership Breakfast started way back in 2010 when just a small few of us got together to discuss these ideas about goodness and And it's just grown ever since. Um, Actually, today we went over 16,000 guests since the time we've started. We create an interactive program where a speaker like Bahua comes and talks about her intersection of her personal and professional life. And we end it with a really awesome charity tool where we've raised over $266,000 for charities. So it's wonderful. It's probably the most professional joy that I have in my life. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, for those of you who are listening far and wide, maybe make your way to Minneapolis sometime for a good leadership breakfast. Yeah, we'd be happy to host you. So, Paul, will you tell us a little bit more about why you asked Pahua to speak at this breakfast? Yes. So the science of putting together um, a platform of speakers is really a lot of fun, uh, but it's also very challenging. I try to feature people who are first half of career, second half, men, women, people who look all sorts of different ways of making a living. And Pahua comes from this space. It's kind of the public 
public-private partnership. She has a very interesting background. She's an immigrant. We're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. But she's in the she works as the CEO and executive director of the Citizens League. And it's an organization that really goes out and listens to the public to try to figure out what are the issues that need to be discussed in terms of policy in state and local government. So let's just get started. I was really intrigued by the fact that she she described herself as an imposter. That's probably the most interesting way I've heard any speaker start. So let's just take a listen. I'm so grateful uh, for this opportunity to speak here this morning. This opportunity to stand here before you as an imposter. Well, not exactly. But I do stand here with self-doubt and just sometimes a little bit of imposter syndrome. I get it from my mother. Really though, self-doubt has been a companion of mine in my life for a long time. A companion that could have stifled my career, but instead, I found it to be a good friend that has helped me excel at every step along the way. And I'd like to talk about that with you today. In fact, I thought about titling this talk, The Goodness of Doubt. When people hear about me or read my story or find something about me, the thing they usually find most interesting is the very thing I have no memory of. Think about that. When you hear other people saying, oh, that Kahua, you know what's really interesting about her? And the thing they say is a thing I can't recall. And the thing is that I was born in Laos on a secret American-run military base that officially never existed. And that my family soon moved to a refugee camp across the Mekong River in Thailand. I hear what that was like. That base was called Long Chang and that it was huge. And in fact, at its peak, it was the second largest city in Laos, yet it never appeared on any maps. My dad's job, my dad's job there was to drive a US military jeep as a type of taxi service. That's how large it was. My parents, they met on that base. When the US withdrew from the war and left Vietnam and Laos, um, they only took with them a few highly ranked military officials among my people, the Hmong. The Hmong had helped the CIA fight the secret war against the communists in Laos, and we fought alongside the Americans. General Vang Pao is a storied figure in our history. He and others got a plane ride out of Laos. My family, they didn't. Thousands of Hmong didn't. And with the war ending, the Lao government wasn't going to take too kindly to all these Hmong people who had helped the Americans. One of my dad's friends, a good American whose name I don't know, went to my dad and said, here's two tanks of gas. Keep the Jeep and get your family out of here. And that's how we got to Thailand, or so I'm told. I recall nothing of what I just told you. That's all based on my family's recollections to me. My, er, my own earliest memories start in Ohio, where we moved about a year in that refugee camp. We moved there because a good person named Louise Blankenship sponsored my family as relocated refugees to come live in the US. 
It was Miss Blankenship who often took me to kindergarten because my parents just didn't know how some of those basic things in daily American life worked, like taking your kids to school. I tell you all of this because it was here that our family friend, self-doubt, started hating around. It almost doesn't seem a strong enough word to say that we, or any Hmong family, were displaced when we were brought here to this country. It's staggering for me to think about all the things that my parents did back then. They were in their 20s. They brought me here. They had three more children in, here in the US. They found a place to live without knowing the language or the support of other Hmong people. They learned English in part by watching public television which is one reason I so very much wanted to work for Twin Cities PBS, which I did do later in life. <laughs> they found jobs, and they passed big, scary exams like the citizenship test to be Americans. I'd like to see how some of you might do on that test. <laughs> and through all of this, my mom never missed an opportunity to proclaim her inability to do something. She had done so much, but doubted she could do anything. My siblings and I protested, what are you talking about? You own a business, you communicate with your customers in a country you very likely didn't know existed when you were little. Nonsense, I'm so stupid. So we never actually know what kind of speaker we're going to get when we bring these people to speak at the breakfast. This woman was very thoughtful and very deliberate and careful in the words that she chose. But the story that she started with is so compelling. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm, I'm not that old. I'm 55 years old. But I've been involved in lots of social service ministry and things in our church and through Lutheran Social Service in Minnesota. And I've heard this same story hundreds of times. It's kind of like the American story where someone starts in a far-off land, there's some persecution, and there's a land of opportunity. The, jo the, the journey was difficult, but here they are. She's the executive director of the Citizens League, and who would have thought that? It's just impossible not to miss the gratitude in her story. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And speaking of the gratitude, um, what she says about her mom, I know we'll talk more about self-doubt because we're going to hear more about that from Pahua. But I, it just struck me as um, the gifts that she received from her mom. Some of it is self-doubt, as she talks about. But there's these other beautiful things that she got from her mom. This The sense of hope and what could be. And the sense of the perseverance and the tenacity to be in a new place and, and make it work. Yeah, and I'll also say that uh, I, um, I know so many Louise Blankenships. We, this is a goodness pays podcast, but there are beautiful stories about people like Louise Blankenship who wrap their arms around people that have all sorts of challenges and just help them with a real life. And that to me is just really, I, I, I want to meet Louise Blankenship. So let's, let's move on. Um, she talks about her own journey now and how the, the self-doubt came alive. So um, let's hear from her again. I have never felt like I'm the smartest person in the room. 
that started when I was in kindergarten. And really, I wasn't the smartest person in the room because I didn't know English. I did eventually learn, and I even became a resource for my parents in helping translate. But those deep-rooted feelings I felt in those early grades continue to this day. I hated that doubt until I decided to make it my friend. My current job takes me to the state capitol a lot. I go into those rooms assuming others are smarter than me, but I sure do see people who pretend they know a lot of stuff. <laughs> I'm always that person who asks the dumb questions. And guess what? They're not that dumb. That's because I usually find other people who want to ask the same thing. Listen more. Ask more questions. Someone who's much smarter than me once told me, we can't learn and defend at the same time. If you're in a meeting where you have to defend your idea or the program you run, how much active listening are you really doing? Not a lot. You're on defense. Instead, I choose to spend more time learning, not defending. Quite honestly, I have a real suspicion of people who can't be vulnerable. I see it every day. People who are acting, Performing. My read of people is usually right, and I quickly connect with people who are authentic and vulnerable. Gosh, don't we need more of those leaders today? So to jump back to where she started, my heart goes out to five-year-old Pahua going to kindergarten and not speaking English. And I can see how that would plant or, or foster those seeds of self-doubt. But then adult me is looking at that and thinking, you know two languages. You're not not the smartest person in the room. Um, but Paul, we talk a lot about self-doubt with our coaches, and, and it's something that all of us experience to some extent. Will you tell me, you, were, you had something interesting to say before we got in the room, so I want to hear more about it. Yeah, good. I, I think there's two pieces of this for me. I think that her, the way she's expressing self-doubt to me seems as if it's a synonym for humility. And I, I think there's, there's, that's a very healthy way to think about self-doubt. It's making sure that you're sort of checking and rechecking yourself going, do I really, do I really feel that? So I, I, I think I heard it differently now in this humility thing. Um, but in the coaching setting, anybody that's got big aspirations has self-doubt. And when they have it and people are kind of stuck by that self-doubt, what I ask people to do in coaching is to write it down, literally write it down. Where's the doubt? And then read it out loud. And I ask them to read it out loud to me as their coach. And then I ask, is that really true? And I can't remember the last time when someone said yes. <laughs> they read it, they write it, they look at it and they say, that's silly. Yeah. But there's a process of surfacing when things come out of your mouth and float around in the room, come back in your ears and right into your heart, you go, oh, okay, it's a different reality. So I see this woman who's processed that humility and sort of wondered, can she do it? But she seems like she comes out on the other end being successful every single time. 
I love I love that you differentiated between a little bit between the humility and the self-doubt. It's like she's channeling those feelings into a sense of humility, which struck me as a very Midwestern mentality as well. She says towards the end, um, you know, I'm not I don't see myself as better than anyone else, but I hope to see myself as equal to everyone else or as good as. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's right. It's that soft that balance between the extreme of I can't do this because clearly she's not living in the I can't. Yeah. And so let's take this one step farther. I think that when self-doubt becomes destructive, it channels into fear and fear usually comes from when we let something small grow into something too big. And she disarms that right there by right now by making a transition to a very famous Booker T. Washington quote. And the references about uh, a, a time when people who are out on the ocean were really struggling to find fresh water while they were in salt water. And his famous quote was, drop your bucket right where you are. And they happened to be over a stream that was in the ocean and they got fresh water. That's what that reference comes from. And so she used that reference to talk about how people can actually act on their goodness, get over their self-doubt and make a difference. So let's go right there. Cast down your bucket where you are. I hear all the time about people who want to do good and make meaningful impact, and they do so by paying thousands of dollars to travel to some place they feel is worse off to do good work. What about your own block where you live? Are you telling me your block is completely free of litter? and that everyone recycles perfectly, and that people living next door to you are having zero difficulty raising their children? Are you telling me there isn't a single stray animal that needs a home? Or that absolutely no one in your apartment building is struggling to quit smoking, drinking, or using prescription painkillers in an abusive way? Are you telling me no one in your community lives alone and goes days without interacting with another person? Are you telling me there's no one around who struggles with depression or PTSD and is having suicidal thoughts? How many of you here are taking care of parents? Are you sitting down and having long conversations with them about how we as a state should take care of our older loved ones as they age? Have you talked to them about living wills and how your parents want to die their best selves? The most impact you have are in the spaces around you. Okay, so what she just did there was to personalize the issues that we face, as broad issues we face as a society, and put them right on our block. I was just fascinated with how vivid those images were and how many ways there are for us to actually make a difference in the lives of people. And what went through my head is this point of view that I talk about a lot. About I believe that the path to greatness in our society is actually paved by the good leaders who do the little things every day, day after day after day, and that adds up to something that we feel really good about. And she was kind of calling us into action in a way I thought was really unique. How did you react to that? Well, I think to build on what you're saying, there's an element of you have to be paying attention 
to see those things. You have to get out of your own little world to see those things. And, you know, we have the challenge of being in a culture where we don't open up a lot of ourselves. She talked about vulnerability earlier. So you you have to really sometimes find ways to push yourself into other people's lives to be able to do that work. And I thought, I just, that struck me as, she's right. We live on streets that have all those things. And how much do we actually notice it and see it, let alone do the small good thing? Yeah, I'm, I'm particularly fascinated these days with some work that's going on by an organization that I volunteer in about isolation. And the thing about isolation is when people are living in isolation, they're in isolation and you can't see them. And so how do you develop the antenna to be able to see through the walls and doors and understand that there are people living in isolation? No friends, no children, no one that's actually thinking about them. And to me, she did a great job of kind of personalizing that for us. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Paul, one thing that we haven't dug into a lot is her work with the Citizens League. Mm -hmm. And I was really grateful that you asked her to go a little bit deeper on that so we could understand, for those of us who may not be super familiar, what it's about. Yeah, so following uh, the prepared remark, which is basically an 18-minute TED Talk, I invite the speaker, in this case, Pahua, up on stage. We sit on stools next to each other, and I interview. And so I started the first interview question like this. So Pahua, uh, the, the Citizens League, for most of us, if we're not active in politics, it's kind of a mystery. So can you give us just sort of the elementary school, what is the Citizens League, and what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, I've been starting to think, to talk about the citizens again. We put the people into the policy. And what I mean by that is often policies are developed and passed without really the intended audience in mind. I mean, how often do we see young people be a part of setting education policy? Yeah, that's a good example. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, a good example of this is when we, we just concluded our minimum wage study committee. And the reason why we call it study committee is we actually do learn, we study. For the city of St. Paul, they asked us, they said, you know, we're not sure what we might want to do around an ordinance, around minimum wage, um, help us. Help us convene community members that reflect some of the challenges and some of the opportunities around this conversation. And we convene low wage workers, small business owners, um, private colleges, employers and employees. For 14 weeks, they are sitting at the same table, learning about how a decision might impact them or each other. And we came up with some recommendations. They're in the good hands now of the city council and the mayor's office, and they will decide what they will do as far as an ordinance. But that ordinance now, whatever happens, is going to be informed by the actual community members who live or work in St. Paul. And that's what I get to do. That sounds fascinating. It's great. I was sitting at a table this morning with three women who work for a community education program. So you can imagine the education policy part really hit home for us. Um, but it was it's so exciting in the day and age that we live in to, to recognize that these sorts of organizations exist and get can connect the public to policies. Yeah, so I've known Pahua for about four months now since we reached out to her. And ever since she told me about the Citizens League, I've been seeing little snippets in the newspaper and on the radio and stuff about what they do, including there I was a part of a forum where they were talking about the effect of minimum wage on the restaurant industry. And they referenced the Citizens League research. So it's, it's kind of this hidden work that's going on behalf of all of us. And, you know, I'm just really grateful that she's doing it. 
So for the last segment here, I well, let's go, I wanted to go back to the central character in this horse, his, her story, and that's her mom. And so I asked her about that in the interview. Let's go there next. Uh, so I'm I, your mom. Yes. She's like the central character in your story. What's your mom doing now? My mom is so. First of all, my mom is four feet eight, and I'm still afraid of her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right? I mean, yeah, yeah, she yeah. orders me around. Okay, okay. So my mom has a small alteration shop on Nicolet Avenue, which is where I also live. So I, we see my mom a lot. In fact, my husband, who's here, sees my mom seven days a week. Well, six days a week. Always checks off on her. So uh -huh. she runs her own little business. Uh -huh. She sets her own hours. Um, she works by herself. She has a huge following of customers uh, who who trust her work, who like her work, who come and visit her, and so she's never alone, um, and she's doing great. That's awesome. She's living the American dream. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. It's hard not to miss, for me, the thread of what Pooh is talking about in our society about people who are lonely and alone, where she starts about talking about her mom, she works by herself, and then later on she says she's never alone. And it was just such a beautiful picture of what could be, and it gave me a taste of who this woman is who made Pahua. I think I, I just I loved what she said about her mom, because I think if we look back on all the 60 some meetings we've done at the Good Leadership Breakfast, the theme of our mothers and grandmothers and to some degree fathers. But see, mom gets a lot of airtime. You know, mothers do incredibly important work. And it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. I have this on the wall in my bedroom at home that says men are what their mothers make them. It's a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, and I think it. It applies to women, but the moms, they have such a strong impact. And um, I, I, I'm finishing the Good, How Goodness Pays book project right now. And Richard Davis, the CEO and retired CEO of U.S. Bank, talked about his grandmother's influence. And I wrote about my grandmother's influence. And it just is uh, it's very heartwarming. And I'm sure moms all over are smiling because of what uh, Pahua said today. Yeah, there's a little bit of me that wants to be 5'3 and still f scary to my son in a few years. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, you, <laughs> still you little referenced afraid. yourself as a young mom, so you've, yeah. got, you, you've got big shoes to fill there. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's an amazing life-transforming thing, and it's, it is, you're right. That comes through everyone's stories. So I, I had just have to say that we started this whole thing by, with Pahua saying she's an imposter. And, you know, that's, that's just a humble way of saying that she's overcome her self-doubt and become really one of the most powerful people, voices in shaping public policy in the state of Minnesota, for sure. And um, I'm just really grateful that we got a chance to host her today. Yeah. Yeah. She was incredible. Okay. So now as we head for home here on this podcast, uh, one of our traditions is to make sure that we try to capture at least one thing to take away, the carpe diem message. What are you going to take away from this particular podcast? Yeah. Uh, as Pahua talked about the ways to, to spark goodness and radiate goodness in your community, the thing that struck me was the piece around loneliness and how do I find ways to connect to the people around me who are feeling that way. I, I can picture a neighbor. And so that to me is that small grain of what could I do differently or how do I engage in a way uh, that will engage that person. I think she'd be really proud to know you had that thought. For me, I'm going to make it even more simple. I'm going to call my mom today. I, my mom and I have been through a lot together and she knows it and I know it. And every time I hear that reference, I think about my mom and I'm going to do my best to take action on it. And all of you out there that still have a mom that's with you today, call your mother. 
<laughs> I second that. Um, okay, so Paul, here we are. What's the final phrase that we want everyone to remember when we they spend time with us? It's goodness pays. Goodness pays. And we heard Pahuat say it too. Goodness pays. So thank you very much for investing the time in this podcast, whether you're exercising or driving or or even walking the dog. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen to how goodness pays in leadership. And uh, we really appreciate you sharing this message with other people. So if you like it, please tell others uh, as we help the goodness pays message grow. Thank you. We hope to talk to you soon.